The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Opening with me the gospel according to Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2 tonight, looking at particularly verses 18 through 22. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. That's where we're going to be. You can, perhaps, if you can see the screen, I know it's rather difficult on some of the small text, but if you can see the screen from the back, or maybe if you have already gotten down in your Bible to looking at the text itself, in Mark chapter 2, 18 through 22, you may have a heading there, something to do with fasting. And uh, this is a question that Jesus was asked in our context concerning fasting. And basically speaking, and really essentially all that it was, is why do your disciples not fast? And so that's a question that has been asked since that time, I guess, of Christians. And I've had it asked of me before, and I've had it asked concerning the Lord's church. In many cases, in many places, why we do not choose to fast or why we do not follow the command to fast, vice versa, that sort of thing. And I think it's a valid question. As a matter of fact, when I first looked at this uh, back several weeks ago as I was getting ahead of myself, at least trying to, I thought the best way to handle it would be just to serve the context. And we're going to do that. We're going to get down to that and looking at those four verses in that. But then the more that I thought about it and the further on that I went concerning this particular text at least, I realized that we may need to go a little bit farther. And uh, that is to serve kind of the whole theme while we've got opportunity. And two words that stood out in my mind, I was talking with Bill Camp about this today and he was pretty much in agreement with me. Uh, Not that that matters, we're trying to agree with the word. Uh, But oftentimes fasting is neither taught nor thought. Now think on that carefully. It's neither taught nor thought. And I mean by that, that it's obviously not taught very often in Scripture uh, as far as our handling of it, sometimes as members of the Lord's church, because we don't predominantly and and completely and wholly hold to the the doctrine or or the practice of fasting, biblical fasting, then we might just not ever get around to teaching about it. And it can be difficult. It can be controversial. It can certainly and has been certainly misunderstood a number of times. I, I shared today with somebody as well that I heard a gospel preacher, a very prominent, if you want to call it that, I hate to use the term, but it explains him well, a very prominent gospel preacher for the Lord's Church that lives out in the western part of the United States. He did a TV program on it one day. And my initial reaction when he first got on the subject, I thought, oh, this is garbage. You know, I don't want to hear it. I don't know where he's going with this. And he went along through that pattern. I've gone back and found that old video. He actually did a pretty good job of handling the subject, I think. That's in my opinion, though. With the exception that when he got down to the end, he used that opportunity to call for a universal fast of the churches of Christ. And I think that's certainly where he overstepped a boundary there. But that's because we have a misunderstanding of the context. And many times we have a misapplication of the context, and it's essentially because we do not teach it. Uh, for the most part. We tend to avoid it. Uh, Brother Garland Elkis taught us in the Memphis School of Preaching to be cautious never to take the Passover when you get to a context. If you're teaching through a book and you get to a difficult place that maybe you don't understand or maybe there's not a lot of information or resources out there, just do not take the Passover. 
And sometimes that may include just getting up and saying, look, I don't know what this means. I don't understand it. I've tried to understand it. I want to understand it, but I don't. And so we're going to read the text, get what we can out of it, and move on. But you still ought to, and we as Christians, we're reading through the Bible. We ought to deal with context. We ought to deal with difficult topics or subjects as we get there. And so because of that, I think it's rarely taught. But the thing about it is, it's rarely, in my mind at least, and this is my opinion again, that's my disclaimer, but it oftentimes is rarely thought, meaning that because we don't practice the, the doctrine of fasting or biblical fasting traditionally as a group or as a whole group or whatever, that a lot of times we don't even think about it. And so we kind of in our minds, you know, we're already like I've been in the past. You know, I just say, well, that's fasting. That doesn't apply to us. That's a different day, a different time. And these are summarizations we make and we move on and never deal with the issue. But again, it is a biblical subject. It actually is a pretty prominent biblical subject in the Old Testament and, and to some extent into the New. So I think it needs to be taught and thought. And that was all an explanation to say that we're not going to get to, probably not going to get very far into the immediate context tonight. But Lord willing, we will before we conclude kind of the overall uh, lesson in this. And then I wanted to put this disclaimer on the screen and be very clear about it so you can hear it and see it hopefully. But I, this is me, I am not in any way trying to determine for you whether or not you could or should fast. Okay, I'm not trying to determine that. And we're going to get down to a point where as we look at it biblically, it seems to be the case that you could if you desired that. If you had the right motivation, uh, the right relation with God, the right opportunity, the right situation is another I-T-O-N word that you can put with that. Um, if you have that in order, you could fast. I think that we have the liberty to do that. But to answer the question, should I fast, I'm not the one to do that. And by the way, neither is the person sitting next to you, in front of behind you, or down the street, or across the country, are not at liberty to do that. And we're going to see that, hopefully, kind of as we go through. So what I want to start with is going back, and we're going to go back into the Old Testament and move our way forward, but going back and looking at a number of biblical examples of fasting. And the key word in that is they're biblical. That is, they're there. Uh, they are undeniable. They are ungetoverable. Uh, they really don't need to be avoided. They're just simply there. And we're going to look at some of the purposes behind that and such. So kind of as a, as a precursor to looking at some of the details in these, I made a list here of several Old Testament, primarily Old Testament. There's a New Testament character on here as well, or group. But many Old Testament Bible characters that over time have definitely fasted according to Scripture. The first of those, and each of these I tried to choose the very prominent ones for us at least, Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness uh, prior to receiving the Ten Commandments. And that, the scripture reference to that is Exodus chapter 34 and verse 28. And I would encourage you to read the context around each of these, but these are the specific verses. So Moses definitely fasted. Matter of fact, just to skip down a character or two, I want to tie them two together. Also, you see a little bit farther down the chart there, Elijah fasted as well. And Elijah, Moses, and Jesus, we mentioned this back, I don't know, six weeks ago, but they were three Bible characters that each, for whatever reasons, ended up fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And the reference to Elijah doing that is 1 Kings 19 and verse 8. So they took care of that and they fasted. 
But in the immediate of that, we got David who fasted. He fasted when he had a child that was sick, ultimately dying. That's 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 12 to 16. There's another time I didn't get back into my uh, PowerPoint to put it on there, but he also fasted when he found out his son Absalom had been killed. He fasted over that for different reasons. We have the Israelite nations as a whole. This will be a key later. They actually fasted on the Day of Atonement. Several records include that, but primarily Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16. Also the context, verse 29 through 31, make record of that. Uh, we have Esther to skip over Elijah because we covered that. Esther, uh, along with the Jews in Persia, fasted before she went in to see King Ahasuerus. Esther chapter 4 and verse 16. Nehemiah fasted and prayed when he learned the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down and destroyed. Nehemiah 4 and verse, I'm sorry, 1 and verse 4. Daniel fasted. I guess he's holding second place in this, but he fasted for 21 days in order that he might receive a vision from God, which he ultimately did in the context of Daniel chapter 10, verses 2, 3, and following the vision came. And then the early church is a New Testament example of that. We're going to get to several of these later. But where the New Testament church likewise fasted and prayed over important decisions. And part of that is recorded in Acts 13, 1 to 3, and 14 and 23. But in that list, and we're going to break it down a little farther in a little bit, but in that list of people, basically all that boils down to say that people oftentimes fasted as a common, it was very common in that time at least, uh, spiritual discipline in which they fasted in many ways for guidance, forgiveness, uh, and such as that. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But to go into some of these characters, I want to divide this up into two equal parts. And I say equal because they're equal in, in strength and authority, not necessarily in content or, or the quantity of them. But there are two basic equal parts that you ought to consider when it comes to fasting or biblical fasting. On the one hand, you have to consider that there was the commanded fast. And we'll talk about that one occasion where God commanded men and women to fast. That is, He laid down a law. He was explicit in that. He was clear in that. And He called upon people to fast. That'll come down to the Day of Atonement in a moment. But then after that, and I would say every other occasion, every single other occasion that you'll find biblically, whether it's Old Testament and or New, the fasting that takes place then is not a, com a commanded fast, but yet is a committed fast. And I mean by that, these individuals, based on the experience that they had with fasting and the experience that maybe some of them, depending on the time frame it had with the commanded fast of the Day of Atonement, they used that continually in a practice, as a practice in their lives to come before God in a certain way to address Him, and more than that we'll get to in the very end of this, maybe next week, to prepare their hearts to deal with God's answers, particularly to their prayers. So that's the two divisions here. But as far as the commanded fast, basically speaking, and I, I've reached out to a number of preachers, uh, as many resources I could gather on the internet because I wanted to try to be as sure as I could about this, but biblically speaking, there is but that one commanded fast. And that was the fast that took place by the law of God, by His command, surrounding the Day of Atonement. And a number of times you find that, I've already mentioned one of them in the earlier chart, but the number of times you find that comes down right mainly surrounding the context 
of Deuteronomy 16, 16. I'm sorry, Leviticus 16, 16. Leviticus 16, 31, uh, 28 to 31, I think is the next one. And then another one we'll mention when we get to it. But if we have to recall, and we need to recall what the Day of Atonement was. This is a day that was set aside by the law of God. It took place at a certain time. It was in the uh, Day of Atonement. It was 10 days after the opening of the civil year. So it's in the seventh month. So the 10th day of the seventh month, specific on the calendar, in which that is the day in which the priest made their way up into the tabernacle, ultimately temple, and they offered sacrifices and went through a whole very... Uh, detailed, legitimate, commanding system of God and what they were to do. But while the priests were doing their work in the tabernacle later temple, the people of God on that one day were commanded to go into the houses and among other things we'll see, they were to fast. Now, that is not the only thing they were commanded to do. But that was a part of what they were to do during that Day of Atonement, which basically meant while the priests are serving, you're going to be in the background as well, dedicating yourself to him in preparation for their sacrifice. And of course, the Day of Atonement had to do with a scapegoat and a number of other things, but part of what that took part in was just exactly that. Moving on. What about the scriptures themselves? Well, I made reference to this one a moment ago, but Leviticus chapter 16, and I don't expect you, as a matter of fact, I would prefer that you not look at the screen as much for some of these, but I did try to help with some of those contexts. Go back to Leviticus chapter 16. When you get there, I mentioned a moment ago, verse 16 is important, Leviticus 16, 16, because it kind of kicks off this context which tells us in that verse, 16, 16 Leviticus, and he shall make an atonement... For the holy place, because of the uncleanliness of the children of Israel, and because of their transgression and all their sins, so that he shall, so that he shall do for the tabernacle, the congregation, of that which remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanliness. So we got the Day of Atonement in the context kicking itself off and being discussed primarily here in verse 16. When we drop down to the context of verse 29, we have a little bit more specifics there. Beginning that reading says this, And this shall be a statute forever unto you in the seventh month and the tenth day of the month, and ye shall afflict your souls. That's King James, old King James. The new King James says, And ye shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be of the, your own country or of a stranger that sojourneth among you. Verse 30. 30. And on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It shall be, verse 31, it shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. Now, two phrases that stand out in that, I, I think, I hope I emphasize a little bit. Those two phrases are actually listed here twice. There'll be two more. But the phrase, to afflict your souls. Now, that in one sense, to me at least, to us, I should say, not to me, but to us, perhaps seems rather vague. Of the listing we'll see in the next context, a few chapters over, chapter 23, if you want to go ahead and turn over there. The idea is that they've got several things that they're being commanded to do as a people, as a whole, 
on that day of atonement a long while that the priests are in the temple offering up those offerings. For example, in chapter 23, beginning in verse 27, this ties back to it, it's still a continuous context anyway. It says there, And the Lord spake unto Moses, verse 26, saying, Also on the tenth day of the seventh month there shall be a day of atonement, and it shall be an holy convocation unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls, there's a phrase again, offering an offering made by fire to the Lord. And ye shall do no work in that same day, for the day of the atonement shall make an atonement for you before God, before the Lord your God. For whatsoever the soul is that shall not be afflicted in the same day, he shall be cut off from among the people. So the afflicting of souls, we're going to continue to discuss, but there's that phrase two more times. And in this case, he kind of gives a negative to it. He sets out the command at the beginning, go into your houses, inflict your souls, do no work. And then in addition to that, to turn that coin over, he says, those who do not follow after this phrase, afflicting your soul, whatever that is, you shall be cast out among your people. But again, we come to the conclusion or may ask the question, well, what is that? Go a little bit farther. Numbers chapter 29. So we looked at Leviticus 16, Leviticus 23. Now Numbers chapter 29. This is just one more verse pulled out of that. Again, I would encourage you to read longer context as well with this. But Numbers chapter 29 and verse 7. And ye shall on the seventh day of the seventh month of the holy convocation, ye shall afflict your souls, and ye shall do no work therein. So that's the same phrase used twice in 16, twice in 23, and then a third time or ne next set of times, a fifth time here in Numbers chapter 29 and verse 7, speaking of afflicting your souls. Now, you read through this, and if you're like I am, the first thing you do with that is you try to determine what in the world does that mean. Is that limited to a certain practice? Is it to include other practices and such? And, and I do what anybody would do, I guess, in that I try to take advantage of the blessing and the curse we have today. And I say it's a blessing and a curse because on the one hand, the blessing is we have a tremendous amount of resources available to us that our grandfathers and their grandfathers did not have. That is, we have at our access today, not only as they did, their Bibles, but we have a stack that would go to the heavens and back, I guess, of commentaries, dictionaries, concordances, lexicons, and you can name a thousand other titles for those, for those books or for those volumes that have been written about this one book. And many of those resources, again, still being a blessing on this side, are accessible through the Internet. So it doesn't take long for anyone, without purchasing anything or going into any trouble, to reach out on the Internet and try to find something that helps to explain whatever we're reading biblically. Blessing. Tremendous curse. Because included with those resources, there's not only truth, but there's error. I mean, if you, if you want to look up and say, should a Christian fast, I'm using that as a, a general heading, go to, go to the Internet, say, should a Christian fast, you can find a number of people that says, absolutely, we've missed it, all these millennial whatever, we've not practiced it, we're living in sin if we refuse it. But guess what somebody says on the other side? Absolutely not. That was a practice of the Old Testament, the old law primarily, and the early church does not apply. To, so, so you've got both sides. 
but in trying to just discover and be reminded of the Day of Atonement, the practices that took place on there. I looked at a couple of three different resources and several others as well, but I want to just put the one on the screen here. This is by John Gill. Now, I don't even know who John Gill is other than I can tell you as a commentator, and I don't use a lot of commentaries, but as a commentator, he's fairly reliable and more than that, easy to read. So I'll just read along with you what he said, and this seems to be the conclusion drawn in other texts as well. But here it is. Uh, the afflicting of your souls was not only by humiliation of the heart for sin, but by repentance of it and by turning from their evil ways, but by corporal fasting, that is corporal, communal, congregational, national, whatever you would call that fasting, which is chiefly meant by the affliction of their souls. So in the Targum of Jonathan, that's just some other uh, non-biblical, non-inspired writings, explains it by abstaining from eating and drinking, and from the use of baths, and from anointing, and for the use of shoes, and for the marriage bed. And also added to that the Mishnah, which the Jews that are attacking Jesus, many of them would really fall in the side of the Mishnah and such as that. It is the Day of Atonement where, it's where they're prohibited basically from eating, drinking, washing, anointing, putting on shoes, and the use of marriage bed forbidden. So it's not just one thing that's meant by this, but several perhaps, including the practice of fasting assumed to be and always understood to be primarily a part of that. That's just the phrase, however. We get over to the New Testament because that's more where we boil down things and we'll get to some more scripture for sure in a moment with that. But we have the, the somewhat of a revelation brought to us. The Apostle Paul is sailing from one place to another, Luke being the penman of the book of Acts. Luke writes these words in Acts chapter 27 and verse 9. He says, And now when much time had been spent, and sailing was now dangerous, the fast was already over. You say, well, why is that even mixed in there? Because the fast, the day of atonement, the fast... The one commanded time when Christ, not Christians, but when the children of Israel were set too fast, that had passed. It was a huge national event. Now, by the time the Apostle Paul gets to his work, we have to clarify, however, what had already happened. I know I hadn't slowed down much. We got about, I think there's 92 slides for this. What had already happened? Well, Jesus had died on the cross. <laughs> the, the work of Jesus had been fulfilled. The old law had actually passed away and the new law was in effect. But what was still helping, what was still happening, I should say, with quote-unquote national Israel and many of those were still holding their minds to the old law. Well, they were still trying to fulfill the old law in its whole, which included the commemoration of the fast of the Day of Atonement. Now, not condemning them either way in this text, but just the point being that the Apostle Paul and those around him on this day were, were effectively knowledgeable of the fact that the fast, the fast, was over. That's the commanded fast. So all that summarized to say there was one time, biblically, when God commanded His children to fast, and that one time surrounded nothing but the Day of Atonement. And they were known to afflict their souls in that. That is, to give themselves over to Him 
and that was only a 24-hour fast. That's what that was. Time-wise, yes, and I would say from the perspective at least being respectful to their practice. Um, from the idea and perspective, maybe your reference to Paul and, and others becoming all things to all men, and your reference to that, rather than storming the doors of the, of the temple and the synagogues and just, you know, first point out of the gate, why are you fasting? What are you doing fasting? The Day of Atonement's past. It's over. We've now got our Lord, and, you know, there's no reason to continue that. To just back up, let them have their tradition by that point, and then in turn use that as a teaching moment, perhaps. But I, I, I would agree that Paul is giving them that liberty in this. Now, that's the shift here. We've got the commanded fast, but what about the committed fasts? I said in the introduction, I tried to bring out that the committed fast involved liberty, and I've kind of put a little subheading up here you probably can't see, but the committed fast is basically where liberty meets loyalty. Okay, the fact that something can be done and whether or not a person chooses to be done may just have to do with their mindset, and I'm, I'm doing this with emphasis, with their understanding and their mindset of what loyalty looks like. And we'll see that coming up. Now, this backs up as well. If you go back, and this continues on, there were times when Old Testament biblical characters, some of which were named on that earlier slide there, the whole group, but there were several times when Old Testament Bible characters fasted when it obviously didn't have anything to do at that moment with that Day of Atonement. These are just some of the examples. This is from Exodus chapter 34 and verse 28. So he, making reference to Moses, was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights, neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets of the words of the covenant the Ten Commandments. And so that's the time we have Moses, Exodus chapter 34 and verse 28. He fasts, and it is not the Day of Atonement. We'll see some more reasoning, practical reasoning behind that a little later. Then we have David, and I mentioned there, I've got two of them up here. There's the third one that I mentioned also. But David fasted, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 16 as well as 23. And David therefore pled with God, the child, uh, pled with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. But he, his child, is dead. And David asked, there, this is David quoting David with this, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Shall I go to him, but he shall not return to me? Now, I want to pull this one out for a moment because we'll get to it later. Why, why was David, this is our suggestion, what we have, why would you say David was fasting at that point? He was devoting all of his time in prayer to God. Yes, and prayer and fasting goes hand in hand on many of these occasions. He's mourning. He's petitioning God on behalf, and I'm looking at the first verse in that, verse 16. He's mourning. He's petitioning God on his behalf to save the child. 
But by the time you get down in the context there to verse 23, what's happened? It says it. Child's dead. What did David say? Why fast? And remember in the intermediate of that, his servants and others around him were confused by that. Because they had seen him fasting, they had seen him practicing you know, the fast, what have you, mourning, whatever all else was going on in his heart, or it was being expressed outwardly, and then all of a sudden the child dies, which ought to be the most troubling, disturbing moment of a parent's life, and what does David do? The fast stops. Now his answer to that is tremendously encouraging to us, because what was his answer? Well, I mean, why worry now? He's in heaven, I'll go to be with him one day, essentially is what he says. But David participated in fast. And again, there was a reference to Absalom I didn't go back and add as well. David mentions this, however. Psalm chapter 35, verses 11 through 14. I've kind of summarized this text. But that is when he prays, he even fasted as he prayed for his enemies. So there are times in David's life where he was fasting essentially over his grief, his mourning, what have you, over a family member but also was willing to fast because his enemies were sick. He says, I afflicted myself. There's that phrase again. I afflicted myself with sackcloths and ashes and bowed my head. That's the position of prayer, at least biblically. Not that we have to follow that, but that's, that's the position we oftentimes see others in, either bowed or lifting their head up toward, but bowed in most cases. He does that. Then David in Psalm 69 and verse 10, he says, when I wept, I chastened my soul with fasting. The similar word to that of afflicted my soul with that. We mentioned in the chart earlier, and I wanted to bring the reference here to Nehemiah. Nehemiah finds out the walls of Jerusalem are broken down. Uh, he's upset over that to some extent. He says, and so it was when I heard these words, that is the walls were broken down, that I sat down and wept and mourned many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. That's Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 4. Another reference is another character. Daniel fasted several occasions, but this one here, Daniel chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. In those days, Daniel was mourning a full three weeks, and I ate no pleasant food, no meat, no wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till the three whole weeks were fulfilled. Another case, biblically, comes up over and over and over again. But the answer to that for some, or for probably the majority of people, might be this. Well, that's Old Testament. You know, you, you, they, we would even be accused. They would say, well, you know what? Now, I, I've, heard, I've heard you teach, preach, study. Uh, I've sat down across the table, you whatever, and you've always made a point, as we were studying our Bible together, someone might say, you've always made it a point of being clear that what's in the Old Testament is of the Old Testament, and although it is written aforetime for our learning, that you also understand that you practice that which is under the New Testament. So, so you can't take, Jim, you can't take, for me, 15 or 20 passages and pull them from the context in the Old Testament and say, well, look at all these characters that fasted, and then try to accuse that on me because you don't have any biblical proof for it. How do we answer that? There's actually no authoritative commandment for us today to do it in the form of worshiping or obeying God. And you know, praying and singing, those things have direct you know, authority for us. Uh, all of those past things were 
to the Jews, to the Hebrew people, and not to us. If you can't hear David, and we're trying to, Cliff's reminding me to make a practice of trying to repeat some of what he said. David is saying, well, I would answer that by saying, well, there's no authority for us to fast to begin with because that one commanded, that's my word, uh, time of fasting was the Day of Atonement. Others are just committing. There's another answer than that. That's a great one. My answer is, okay, I'll show you in the New Testament. We've got biblical fasting in the Old Testament that occurs by all these characters and others. I only made a limited list. But in the New Testament, others fasted. Jesus, we've looked at it in our context from Mark's account, but in Matthew's account as well, it's just as clear. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, And Jesus was led up in the Spirit by, in the wilderness, and He was tempted of the devil. And when He had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, He was afterward, He hungered. Jesus fasted. We've got Anna. Luke chapter 2, verse 27, it says, And this woman, that's referring to Anna, was a widow, about 84 years, who did not depart from the temple and serve God with fastings and prayers day and night. We've got Saul, Acts chapter 9 and verse 9, And he, that Saul, was three days without sight, neither did he, neither did he ate or drank. That was fasting. Now, whether or not that was a purposeful fast, I don't know. I would be intended to know that, or to assume that some of these fasts that took place are over grief. If you've ever been in a position where someone you found out suddenly ill, or especially if someone passed away, what happens to you sometimes? I just don't feel like eating, or I forget to eat. Matter of fact, I told Bill Camp, he's already left, but I told him today we went to eat lunch, and I said, I tell you what, I'm trying to teach fasting, and I've been fasting for about two days because I keep, you know, I get in this and, and just don't eat. This happened with Saul. Cornelius fasted. Now he is at the point that he does this fasting. He's not even uh, a Christian by that point. He's not even been baptized. But in Cornelius said, four days I was fasting until this hour. And out there I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard and thine alms are before thee in remembrance of the Son of God. He fasted. The church itself, New Testament early church, fasted. And they ministered in the Lord and fasted. The Holy Spirit said, Now separate me from Barnabas and Saul, to which I have called them. And having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. So that's the kind of the commissioning of Saul, or Paul, I should say, and Barnabas. Now, in that case, that's not a fast of grief. That's a fast of what? Well, commissioning is one word for that, but a decision or determination. I've got a lot of D words in about 25 slides for that, situations where they fasted. When elders were appointed, Paul and Barnabas fasted, it says, and so when they had appointed elders in every church, they prayed with fasting. They commended them to the Lord whom they believed. That's that. And I, I'm, I'm extremely regretful now because I knew I had too much, but at the same time, if you walk out here right now, you don't know top side or bottom what we're talking about. So if the Lord doesn't return before next week, and if He does, just be faithful and, and celebrate along. But if He doesn't return before next week, please try to give me some time <laughs> because we haven't hit top side or bottom of our text or the, or the purposes behind it, which is what really matters. 
in the evidence. But the principle being this, fasting is a part of Scripture, okay? Whether it's Old Testament, whether it's New Testament, no matter what character, no matter in that case, for one extent, whether you're talking about the law of Moses, primarily Old Testament, you're talking about the law of Christ and the New, fasting was a part of their lives. Whether it was commanded of God in that one certain situation or whether it was just committed by those who were trying to dedicate themselves to God for various purposes, um, it was a part of their lives in that. Any question or comments other than, I wish we'd have got further or I wish you'd have sped up or something. I talked as fast as I could. If y'all have ever been around me, that's as fast as I can go. My mouth is dry, that's it. All right, we'll try next week. Uh, I'll say this, this will help. When it comes to determining whether or not one should fast, and again, I'm not suggesting you do it or I do it or anybody else, but I, I leave the liberty to that. One key to dividing that for yourself is determine whether or not you're fasting for reason or for ritual. That's pretty much where we're going. Are you doing it for reason or for ritual? Because in the context of where we'll get in Luke, that's definitely what's happening. Not Luke, but in Mark, that's what's happening there. We've got people who are fasting because of ritual when they have no reason to do it. So we'll get to that later, Lord willing. Thank you for your time.